Hello, and welcome to another Sports Next Door podcast. My name is Owen. Today is Monday, September 12th, and I am joined, as I always am, by my voisin, Max. How's it going, my friend? Doing well. Uh, had a very busy last seven days. Um, I think right after we hopped off the pod, I ended up planning a trip to Paris. Last yes, week. for those of you who don't know, that is why I... I uh, went a little bit cultural in our intro today. A little, little spicy French for my neighbor Max here. So I want to hear about the highlights of the trip. And then obviously first day of school as well. So busy, busy week for Max since we've last spoken. Yeah, 24 hours span, getting back from the flight, trying to get ready for that. Had that this morning. 9 a.m. starts are a beautiful thing, by the way. Um, loving. That was the highlight of my day today, I think. But I was uh, chatting someone up at the airport, both on our way back from Paris. And uh, one funny one we both had was the first time we saw the Eiffel Tower. Because as a Toronto boy, you can relate to kind of always knowing where the CN Tower is. It doesn't really matter where in the city you are. Like, five kilometers out from it it serves as a landmark for me to navigate the city it's kind of ever present and going to paris i really thought the eiffel tower would be exactly the same so the whole train ride in from the airport i was craning my head wondering why i'd get my first look at it the 25 minute walk from the train stop to the hostel same idea didn't see it during that time uh like the walk around the local canal still hadn't seen it i think part of it is that just constantly those building those old buildings that are all just about five stories tall with that beautiful uh, i don't know if it's kind of renaissance baroque architecture um which they're just high enough that you can't see um, but exploring that i was kind of waiting waiting i end up going to montmartre the kind of hilliest part of the city um to visit something else and as I was walking around, I just kind of turned this corner up on the hill and like in between two trees, like this one part of the lookout, it wasn't even a lookout at that point. It was just like an accidental space between a tree and a building, but the angle was different from everywhere else up there. I saw it from this like weird in between two trees, very far away angle. That was a really fun, cool moment. Um, the Louvre was absurd just the sheer grandiosity of it uh really and like the endless amount of breathtaking art kind of took my breath away for hours and hours on end um more and more so as the walking kept going versailles very cool of course though i kind of wish i'd done it before the louvre because the artwork was a bit of a letdown at versailles after having been in the louvre the last day um but i think phrasing it as like what is the highlight kind of takes away a little from the charm because like like there's no one oh my goodness moment you're experiencing that the entire time as you're walking yeah. around seeing those buildings as i was describing experiencing this city um from a different age than us north american boys have ever really experienced um 
easily the most frustrating part of the trip for me is I pride myself on having a pretty good internal compass and sense of direction. And I never realized how uh, much that took for granted being in a grid city. Um, I could not get my bearings for my life because all these streets on the diagonals, the curves, just I, I needed my phone. And thank God you can use a GPS pretty well without data. But yeah, it just being immersed in the city, the streets, um, experiencing the museums, the food, no like one moment was super like three exclamation marks punctuated, but it was continuous. Yeah, I, I felt the same way about my trip. I'd say the moment that got more surreal now, looking hindsight, was the fact that we got to see the Queen of England after, oh. uh, yeah, after that event. Being the last group to see her was is pretty, just like astounding and thought provoking. But um, yeah, it's I find it difficult overall to really take in the weight of a moment. I can definitely appreciate it but I, I don't know if you're like, what you're supposed to be feeling. And so, like you said, it's, it's just that general overall, like in excitement, adventure, relaxation at times with, with not having to be somewhere at some time, if you don't want to and, and being in control. And that's the piece I really loved about traveling. And I, I hope you got a bunch of that as well. 100%. And I think, in some ways, I found myself putting a bit of pressure in the moment to be feeling more. And even if there were tinges of disappointment in the moment when that wasn't more, looking back, that pressure's gone and I can enjoy it for what it was a little easier. Cool. When I was there, I got a PSG jersey. Did you partake in any sports in Paris? Did you see Victor Wendanyama? Did you no. see him? <laughs> somehow in the city of what 30 I don't know how many million that just didn't quite work out uh no sports apparel like plenty like five or six t-shirts plenty of yeah. stripes as I'm repping yeah. one right now and also uh this sick like bleached um like the anime sweatpants that I loved there you go <laughs> uh yeah it's funny you talk about the moments um I think travel very unlike sports in that where the big moments, you know exactly how much they mean and they need no further addressing explanation. If you're there, if you feel and experience it, um, there's absolutely no disappointment in those really, really big moments. And I think I might've gotten to witness one of those about five hours after getting out of the airport yesterday um booking this trip kind of sort of on purpose uh made sure i would get back at in time at least to watch the u.s open final uh for the atp tour because e even if i was going to miss the semis the quarters most of week two i did really want to see the final and so i was very happy that my itinerary lined up to be able to watch carlos alcaraz and casper rudd play it and boy, oh boy, what a year for Carlos Alcaraz winning um, break. I, I don't know where he was seated in January. I, I think it was maybe the 50s and yeah. maybe even lower. Um, but he ends, he, I think he's going to end the year at number one. Uh, 
Rudd and Nadal behind him. Nadal, I think, will certainly not be playing to pass him. I don't know how many tournaments Rudd will be looking to compete in and see if he has a chance. Either way, though, um, the last remaining big moment of the year goes to Carlos Alcaraz. Uh, the 19-year-old Spanish kid becomes the youngest number one seed on the ATP tour ever. Um, maybe in the open era tennis ever. I'm not sure what the WTA history of that side looks like. Maybe Serena's done it. I wouldn't be shocked. And yeah, um, I before I get into my match notes, though, I don't know if you can take a sec and say anything and let me gather myself. Yeah, it really feels like the U.S. Open overall, from a North American perspective, this was a a really big couple of weeks for tennis as a sport um obviously with serena's final match and then some of the great <laughs> matches we got to see along the way from kyrgios from rudd from alcaraz from uh, francis tfo who became a hometown fan favorite uh and then on the woman's side seeing simona uh or suetic make her run as well as uh Angevere. Uh, and then as well, I believe it was the, uh, the young American kid as well. Um, I can't, her name escapes me now on the woman's side, but also a teenager who was, who was making a good run in, in, on the woman's side. Coco Goff. I believe that's the one. I'm not sure that that's one of the young up and coming Americans. I think she's still a teenager. But just overall, like you say, these these really important moments, we had quite a few of them in this tournament, like all time, where were you when moments. And I don't think, I think tennis's popularity probably maintained <laughs> around the world based on this tournament, but certainly in the US, it did dominate a lot of the sports center highlights It picked the right time just before football started. And, and of course, right at the tail end of, of baseball season and uh, in the off seasons for basketball and hockey. So picked a good spot, had a lot of exciting moments and the Canadian and American viewership of that match was uh, that tournament is probably the highest it's been in a really long time, mostly due to Serena, but a great way to finish it. And now everyone is going to have at least a inkling of who Alcaraz is going into next year. And it's not just who is this guy coming out of nowhere. It's a kid that has the potential to rise and make a name for himself, like Djokovic, like a Federer, like a Nadal. So a really, really cool way to end the tournament. And I'll let you go through your match notes a little bit now. Yeah, I'll, I'll just touch on a couple of things that happened prior to this final. Um, Alcaraz, it seemed like, was in almost all the big matches, but I think TFO as well from beating Nadal and beating Rublev in two fantastic matches really retained the U.S. viewership that, that was above average numbers from Serena. I know some Americans I follow on Twitter who never talk about tennis were getting excited watching him. Uh, the match Alcaraz played with him was a five-set thriller. And before that, I'd say the match of the tournament probably happened between him and Yannick Sinner, uh, which is shaping up to maybe be that next Federer, Rafa, Djokovic-esque rivalry. Uh, the way those two bring out the best in each other has been fantastic to watch these past. Uh, they've played three in the last four months and all the more impressive to Alcaraz that Sinner took the last two. But yeah, um, it was, 
as most tennis matches are, the momentum went back and forth. Um, I, I, the comparison to the big three, what I always talk about is the mentality they have to back up and solidify their skills and foundation that all the unique tools they have. For Alcaraz, there's no doubt that all the tools are there. The athleticism he has, the power he generates, the flair and pizzazz he plays with. I don't know if you saw the behind the back shot he made against Sinner. Um, probably my highlight of the tournament of all the rallies I saw, that was unbelievable. Um, the You think describing that game, like that play style, gentle, um, doesn't really fit with the list of adjectives you add to him, but the drop shot and touch he has is also sensational. There's no doubt that the skill and package is there. Uh, it, it really is a question of mentality and the, um, the dedication to get better. And one other note, like last year, he played a really good five-setter against Tsitsipas and then had to retire and couldn't play Oje Aliassime because it drained too much out of his physicality. Here he does the Grand Slam marathon, plays two five-hour set, excuse me, two five-set matches in the quarters and the semis. I think the one against Sinner did go five hours and was the latest U.S. Open match ever. And he still had the energy to not look in trouble whatsoever throughout this final. Uh, he came out great, got an early break against Rudd. Uh, you saw a bit of his mentality early there. After he got that break, it really felt like he didn't care on Rudd's service games. Uh, really taking the the risky shots, like I'm already up a break. If I can get one more break, this first set's mine in the bag. If not, I just have to hold serve still. It's fine. Uh, which he didn't get that second break. So the unforced errors seemed a little on the high end for him going into the start. And then midway through that second set, it caught up to him. Um, more unforced errors costing him a break. And then that really compounded at the end of the second set where he had two double faults and a couple really lazy drop shots to throw away the game and end up uh, giving Rudd an easy second set, 6-2. I was, wasn't really sure. Um, like, I was thinking as I was watching this match, in tennis, the momentum has to be on one side or the other. Like in basketball and football and hockey, you can kind of have neither team playing well and the momentum stalling. It's who's going to grab it? Who's going to get that fast break? Who's going to get it going? But in tennis, really, if you don't have it, your opponent has it. There's no way for the match to play out and no one to have it. At the end of the second set, it looked like Rudd had it. Um, but Alcaraz, first time to credit the mentality, comes out and after uh, Rudd played two pretty solid first two points, Alcaraz came out guns blazing and uh, broke that first game in. Um, some fantastic serving to start the third set there. Saw him almost break again and go up three love. Uh, Rudd saved it right at the end. Um, but then midway through that third set, Rudd kind of bounced back um, he did, it, it, like Alcaraz was hitting so big, had so much pizzazz, had so much athleticism on display. Rudd really felt like the subtle, um, just so subtle in comparison, but he, like the shots he was hitting, the backhand slices that looked like they gave so much time, but were so tricky with the spin, uh, the kind of flat dead balls, the depth he was getting, um, 
just quietly giving a lot of trouble and managed to break back um, midway through that third set. And then he really started to hold his serve effortlessly. It felt like he was the better player. Uh, those unforced errors were still higher than the winners on Alcaraz's side. And quietly, like after breaking back in that third set, it really felt like Rudd had all the momentum going towards the tail end of the third set on Alcaraz's last service game to hit the tie break. Uh, Rudd really pushed the gas. He managed to generate three, four set points in a deuce. Uh, and Alcaraz had kind of slowly felt like he was fading. Even the like fist pumps and energy he was trying to generate seemed a little less. It, and going back, you looked that Rudd had already played one Grand Slam final this year. You thought the experience would be on the Norwegian side. The composure would be there. Uh, that if one player was going to break, falter, and struggle to regain stride, it was going to be the younger player without the Grand Slam final experience. I really felt like watching those set points for Rudd, like even if he doesn't get this, this is like he... Alcaraz is going to be tired from defending. This is going to be exhausting for him. How well is he going to be able to play in the tiebreak when all throughout the latter half of this third set, uh, Rudd's service games and holds have been so much more effortless. Um, but Alcaraz comes up with a couple big serves, a couple big hits, gets himself out of that last game. And in the tiebreak, then suddenly Rudd just falls apart. The, like, the unforced errors, the lack of deadliness he he gave a couple more freebies up um he had all these fantastic forehands down the line on these shots that Alcaraz was hammering uh, in the third set were a huge part of how he just kind of deflated Carlos's game and all of that just vanished in the tiebreak it was it's why you play one more point push for one more rally, don't give up on any service games, even if you've been broken and you think the set's over. You never know when your opponent's going to falter and run out of gas. And Alcaraz, looking like he was on the low to waning end when you considered the history he'd had in the last week and how tired he must be, uh, like Rudd kind of collapsed out of nowhere. And it's a credit to Alcaraz's mentality that he pushed through that difficult last half of the third set, especially that last game, to get to that point um and just kept himself in it until the opportunity was there and once it was there he had no difficulties uh steering the course and staying ahead going into that fourth set both came out kind of more clinical and mechanical holding their service games pretty easily and again just one game run falling apart some unforced errors um the serving a little less I will say like Alcaraz really struggled with Rudd's second serve throughout the match, which in the first set, it felt like surely he's going to figure this out at some point. And this like ridiculous 65% win percentage number Rudd has is going to go down. But as it didn't by the late third set, it, you felt like it was going to go all match. Uh, Alcaraz kind of finally made the adjustment to just stand back and uh, not try and rush or attack the second serve too hard. And I felt like that gave him a few more balls in play uh, that earned him a couple more points. That was something Rudd had done well all match to just stand very far back on the important points and uh, not try and do too much with too little, uh, get balls in play and hope that the percentages favor you. So I, I think that adjustment also came for Alcaraz after a word from his coaching. So we talked at the start of this about um, 
what effect will the coaches have? And I do think some help for the 19 year olds, uh, shift in tactics could be observed there. Interesting. But how many times do you see players with like how hold hard it is to hold the lead, uh, with all the pressure, all the momentum. And when he got that break, he stumbled a step, but he never fell. He always caught himself, uh, really interesting last service game that saw him like get ahead and then give some points away on like pretty bad unforced errors but then just get back to it with the big serve and uh in the end there was no real tension at the tail end of that fourth set and Alcaraz able to take it and it like February to May, it was, what is the ceiling on this kid? Like, is this the future of tennis? And then from the French onwards, we kind of saw him stumble there. Never really regained that absurd form he'd found in that stretch of time. And as one of the five players who had a chance to clinch the number one seed going in, of course, eyes and expectations on him. But it feels like he's put himself right back in the conversation of where we were back at that time. Because when he, not only does he have the skill set to just dominate, he really showed in this US Open that he has the mentality as well that you need to maintain yourself at the top of the sport. Um, Casper Rudd has had a fantastic year as well, going from the guy who plays uh, low seeded or low point clay tournaments to get himself into a guy who's made it to two grand slam finals uh, is very young very coachable very calm it's hard to imagine him going anywhere from up but here uh, yannick sinner with the match of the tournament for me against alcaraz uh, we got to see Shapovalov regain his form a little, played a really fun one against Rublev. Um, Rublev himself, we're still waiting to see break that quarterfinal curse that he's had in Grand Slams. Uh, but a lot of young guys really coming out of this tournament, showing what they have and showing that the future of tennis uh, past the big three era is going to be exciting. And um, you can't help but say that Carlos Alcaraz is going to be leading that charge. Without a doubt. And if I had to set an over-under of 15 and a half Grand Slam titles on his career, what do you take? Man, that, that's... Oh, that, that, uh, I, can't, I can't commit to that. Oh, come on. It, it, he's good, but... If we get midway through next year and we've seen improvement in his game between now and the offseason, then absolutely. Because that is also the terrifying thing. His serve is average right now. Last year, he had this US Open uh, where he exhausted himself. And okay, if I've got this big physical style, I need to really work on my cardio, my conditioning, make sure my body can maintain this. And that's exactly what he did during the off season. If he looks at um, this year and asks, okay, yeah, I won a grand slam. I finished number one in the world, but how can I get better? Uh, Then it's going to be a really tough task for the competition to keep him from that. But there's just 
so many guys in tennis, Andy Murray, Andy Roddick, um, Dominic Taim, like uh, Zverev, Medvedev. We see so many guys win their first Grand Slam, uh, look so ready to come up and dominate and join that big three club. And then it's just the time and longevity is such a cruel, hard thing to achieve that like, it's not, is he great? It's like, does he have legendary greatness? And that's not something I can say after one year. Fair enough. What's the number that you would say for sure over if I set it at 10, eight, five, yeah, I, I think five. He He's a really good clay player. Um, so I, I think a couple of Frenches in his future. I clearly, he can win on hard court. So the US and Australian, he should be a contender. So I, I think I'd go pretty comfortably on over five. There you go. There you have it. Congrats, Carlos Alcaraz on a five plus Grand Slam career. <laughs> we'll check back in, in in 20 years. Yep all right um i guess we can also bury our predictions on canadians winning their first grand slams this year that we made in january uh tough run for felix i liked a lot of what i saw from chapeau uh which he really needed to close out this year they've still got some tennis to play uh, i think chapeau in sweden right now felix competing for canada in the davis cup um so better luck next year, boys. And uh, yeah, the future of tennis is still very, very much exciting with or without Novak and Rafa for however much longer. Good thing I just used my hot takes and not my Charles Barkley guarantee because it, it did not go well for me in tennis this year with the hot takes. Yeesh. All right, but tennis, more my wheelhouse than yours, uh, somewhere where you've been consistently a lot more reliable uh, the world of the NFL, which is now back up and running. Yes, a beautiful sight to behold. NFL is back, and what an incredible first week of the season. Capped off by a rather stinky Sunday night football game, 19-3 win for the Buccaneers over the Dallas Cowboys, and Dak Prescott breaking his hand at the end of that game, so he will be out <laughs> for probably six weeks. I know it is rough. It is rough out there for Cowboys fans, and I do not feel any sympathy. Not <laughs> also to a get... more beloved team. Exactly, right? I cannot wait for my Denver Broncos to kick off their season tonight against the Seattle Seahawks in about two hours' time. That's why he wanted the early pod. Yes, exactly, exactly. Got to be tuning in for that. Uh, but a quick recap here as we run around the league. Uh, overall, seems like the AFC is a stronger conference than the NFC, which is what we were thinking going into the season, uh, but definitely proved so by a couple of the matchups. The Kansas City Chiefs just destroying the Arizona Cardinals uh, in their own stadium. Patrick Mahomes on the beginning of his revenge tour, five touchdown passes, no interceptions with 360 yards, made it look so, so easy. And Cardinals defense looks poor, so take that into consideration when we watched Kansas City play the LA Chargers on Thursday, a much better matchup, but he looked really unstoppable. And so did his counterpart, Josh Allen of the Buffalo Bills, who had three passing touchdown and a rushing touchdown where he dove over uh, <laughs> Bobby Wagner of the LA Rams. So those are definitely the top two contenders of the start. 
Unfortunately for the Cincinnati Bengals, who thought they could return to that status, they get upset by the Pittsburgh Steelers in overtime after their extra point on a last-second touchdown gets blocked and it goes to overtime. Uh, and, and Pittsburgh's able to pull that one out and get a big win there. And then the Indianapolis Colts, another team uh, that fa- failed to convert late, and they end up taking a tie with the Houston Texans. So that deals a big blow to their season. So a couple of AF- AFC hopefuls uh, with a poor start, but lots of seasons still to go, especially with the 17-game uh, season now in our, in our second running. Last thing to touch on here, uh, my fantasy MVP for week one, you got to go with the biggest name or the biggest week. And I paid the biggest money in my auction draft for him. Justin Jefferson of the Minnesota Vikings, 180 yards, two touchdown passes. And I think 250 yards was on the table for him. He was untouched by a really high level, like top five secondary in Green Bay. Uh, and he just made him look like Swiss, Swiss cheese all over the field. Uh, dominating performance from Justin Jefferson and looking forward to seeing what he does for the Vikings and my fantasy team this season. That's really going to do it for the NFL. Uh, I'll have some deeper recaps, some deeper previews as the season moves along here, but still keeping it light as uh, as we finish week one. That was a <laughs> strange term to use as we segue into a brief combat corner. Uh, wanted to send out our condolences and just say a general rest in power to Canadian Elias Theodoro, former UFC MMA fighter, um, who posted an eight and three record at the time, um, a very bizarre, unique kickbox cardio style. Um, he passed away at age 34, um, with stage four liver cancer, something kind of completely out of the blue. Um, just some, I actually did get to see Elias fight live at the only event UFC event I was ever at, um, where he unfortunately did lose to Derek Brunson. Um, but the two things I wanted to touch on for him, I guess the, he, he was obviously a fantastic athlete. You don't get to the UFC without being one, but there was nothing unique or absurd about his game. He didn't have a Apollo Costa physique. He didn't have Israel Adesanya's reflexes. He didn't have Habib Nurmagomedov's grappling. He didn't have any one unique special quality that just puts you so far above. In fact, he looked incredibly average. And he managed with that skill set, he managed to post an eight and three record, uh, doing whatever he had to do um staying remarkably safe in a sport um where you're meant to simulate the death of your opponent and it had its controversy at the times but in hindsight um not watching the matches live it's like how impressive is it to get in the cage with someone like eric anders who um a world-class athlete who was part of the university of alabama's uh championship team as a linebacker to be in there with 15 to be in there with him for 15 minutes while he tries to take your head off and uh, not really get damaged and in fact out kickbox out fight him Uh, the other thing to touch on him the first ever mma athlete to be sanctioned to use cannabis um, with a chronic condition that made it incredibly painful for him to fight and uh 
meant he couldn't really train the way he wanted to close to UFC cards because uh, of their prohibitions on the drug. Uh, he really used his platform to advocate for that. And it was something incredibly meaningful that he was very vocal about. Um, and don't have much more to say on it than that, but just gone far too early. Um, wanted to take a second and point talk about what I remember him for. So rest in power, Elias. Another person just want to shout out uh, in the podcasting journalism world, a uh, very popular uh, person worked for the ringer.com, Jonathan Sharks, also passing away from cancer. Uh, this past weekend. So want to give our support to his family as well and a rest in peace there. Um, something Jonathan really loved to talk about was basketball. And as we always take a difficult turn out of sad news, that is where we are headed next uh, is basketball storylines there and uh, a Eurobasket tournament that has been nothing short of thrilling, Max. Really, really fun stuff. Um, I had never really tuned in to Eurobasket before and and a lot of the European basketball that goes on, but this is a really fun, uh, basically like Euro 20 or Euro cup style um, for soccer, but for basketball. And they are into the quarterfinals now with some really, really fun uh, players still left and some fun teams still left. And uh, my early takeaways from Eurobasket is really that Giannis, Luka and Jokic, this tournament has forced them to play over the summer and they are going to come into the NBA in some of the best shapes they've been. And I mean, Giannis is always a freak, uh, but Jokic and Doncic really, I think are going to benefit from this tournament and it's going to be a quick start for them having this extra uh, high level reps. And I cannot wait to do, see what they do to take over the league this year. And then my sleeper pick for good stats, bad team guy of the year is Laurie Markkinen who put up 43 for Finland uh, in a win recently. And that I think is one of the top five scoring performances in Eurobasket history. Wow. And he has been tearing it up for Finland uh, throughout the tournament, just scorching hot. He's showing some uh, shooting off the dribble as well as shot creation for himself, which you never see in the NBA. And I'm wondering if some of the stuff he's doing here in Eurobasket is going to translate next year for the Utah Jazz. He's going to have more space than he's probably ever had in his career to attempt that with the Jazz. Exactly. So keep an eye out for Larry Markkinen going into next year's NBA season. That's it for basketball. We'll do a little bit of talk in hockey here as uh, some, some new deals come through the pipes. Uh, three Canadian teams all getting some deals done. The Senators, the Canadians, and the Canucks signing Tim Stutzla. Kirby Dak and JT Miller, respectively. Uh, Stutzla, fantastic contract, eight years, uh, 66.8 million, especially with the anticipated cap increase. Uh, getting him at that number obviously is massive right now for someone who I don't think has proved as much as some other top level wingers at his position and age, but a contract with a ton of potential for him to grow in and become a bargain. Uh, and so I like the deal for the Senators. Same with JT Miller, a little bit older in his progression on the timeline there, uh, but an $8 million deal able to get by trading away Hamannick uh, in the offseason. And what it does for Vancouver, though, is it does hamstring them a little bit with how they are going to get the Bo Horvat deal done. Uh, but like like the deal for a guy who was their 
top scorer last year uh, and really knows how to put the puck in the neck. You can never overvalue that in a, in a player. And so like that deal. And then Kirby Doc, something that you mentioned on your solo pod a couple of weeks ago was that they were going to have a hard time fitting his contract in. They're able to do so because of a, a really low cap hit. I think it's 3.3 uh, if you're doing quick math. And due to his injury history, they were able to get a steal at that number. But if he can play to what the potential of everyone thought he had coming out of uh, juniors and, and being the third overall pick, then that is a massive steal for Montreal. That And he could fit well uh, either with Suzuki and Caulfield or Slavkovsky in a really solid young core four there 100 percent um yeah it seems like just a matter of time before they got the price declaration done and then would have the room to sign back and they're able to do it for less than i thought um also quick touch nick suzuki named the captain for the montreal canadians uh it's hard to know what to make of them going into next year a team kind of constantly some subverting the projections and expectations but it does feel like at least offensively uh the young talented core is there to do some damage likewise for the senators um i, I think right now obviously well stutzla's cap hit will come into the year after this season so it'll be really interesting to see what kind of numbers he puts up this season uh, it's totally possible right now he hasn't made the leap to be worth this eight million dollar cap it um but the the senators make the bet that he will be one two years in they have the cap space to do so uh they're gonna have trouble building around the um commitments they've now made to kachuk to stutzla to batherson to shabbat um but the core is there for them if stutzla with the projections on stutzla what we've seen from him it does seem a near certainty that the floor for him is to at least be worth this contract in three four years and so they'll get decent to great value out of him depending uh for miller i don't know the canucks seem kind of cursed to me to see great production out of a player for one year sign them and then have them regress for, so i'm going to hold my breath on this a little um but you do what you got to do to get your yeah scoring is always going to come at a premium in the nhl so uh, not much you can do other than that and just hope the curse breaks for you eventually you've got a minute and a half oh for baseball and any other touch-ups yeah, I think we're going to just shout out baseball briefly. Bo Bichette, AL Player of the Week, and the Jays have eight of 13 of their next games against Tampa Bay, who is half a game ahead of them in the wildcard race. So big things coming up for the Jays, big couple weeks. Uh, and Nick Suzuki, named captain of the Montreal Canadiens. That is a historic franchise. And um, being in the Toronto market, not an easy thing to do to be a captain of a team with so much history and so much passion. So best of luck to him in that role. Uh, thank you everyone so much for listening. We are milking every last second of this zoom call uh, on our first pod back in a while. And I promise we're trying to get down a more regular schedule. So thank you once again for listening and uh, we'll, we'll talk again shortly. At the risk of getting cut off, I'm going to plug Straight From The Path's new album, Euthanasia, Hardcore Brilliance. Been listening to it all over the streets of Paris. Sports Next Door, signing out.